Okay, today my guest is Professor Rosie Litton. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Rosalie as a person, Professor Tung is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Tung is an AIB fellow, as well as a fellow of the Academy of Management, the British Academy of Management, the International Academy of Intercultural Research, and the Royal Society of Canada. She has served as the Dean of the Fellows, the President of the AIB, and the President of the Academy of Management. In 2021, Rosalie received the John Dunning AIB President's Award in recognition of outstanding service to AIB and the field of uh, international business, in addition to the gold medal for more su uh, substantial contributions to JIBS, the 2019 Academy of Management's Distinguished Service Award, 2020 AOM IM Division, Outstanding Service to Global Community Award, and the most recent International Management Division Eminent Scholar Award. Rosalie is a past editor of Cross-Cultural and Strategic Management. She also served as an area editor at JIBS and is a senior editor at the Journal of World Business. Thank you, Rosalie, for joining us. Well, thank you, Ilgas. Uh, first question, what did you want to become when you were a child? That's a very good question. Um, I think I have to put that in a little bit of a context in order to properly answer the question. I grew up before the women's liberation movement. And so back then, um, the role expectations of women and the careers that they pursue were very different from what it is today. So back then the role expectations were that women were supposed to be mothers. And if they were to work outside of the home, primarily it would be as grade school teachers or nurses. Um, so there were very few role models for me. Um, mind you, I, I have the greatest respect for mothers, uh, for grade school teachers, um, and also for nurses because, I play, uh, because they play a very important role uh, in terms of nurturing. Uh, in terms of education, uh, in terms of uh, informing uh, the next generation of, of, uh, of young people. So, um, so as to role expectations, I knew that I wanted to do something that was different from the traditional women's role, okay? Um, exactly what I didn't know at that time. Um, I knew that I wanted to be an inventor, um, and, uh, but exactly what I was gonna invent, I didn't know. Uh, one thing I did know was that education was really the key. And uh, so I needed to be highly educated. And to a certain extent, education came naturally in the sense that the Chinese have always emphasized education. Um, scholars, for instance, in ancient Chinese society were always held in high esteem. And I think even today, you know, that they're held in high esteem. And my parents who have gone through the ravages of World War II have always told me uh, that um, with war, one can lose one's wealth, personal properties, but what you have up here, uh, what you learned, uh, what you studied can never be taken away from you. So from a very early age, I'd always known that education was important. So, um, and so in looking back, I think to a certain extent, I have fulfilled the role of being an inventor uh, to the extent that when we engage in research, when we engage in good teaching, 
we are inventors, we are creating knowledge to a certain extent. And it also fulfills that role of nurturing uh, that I talked about, which is um, we're really, you know, passing on what we learn to the next generation uh, of young people. And it reminds me um, that teaching and research to a large extent really are a sacred profession in the sense that uh, of what Aristotle said, you know, that, um, you know, parents give us life, but teachers are really the people uh, that give us the wherewithal to living uh, a good, you know, um, and prosperous life. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Hong Kong. And then uh, how, how did you move to... Uh... Okay, so I grew up in Hong Kong and then I emigrated with my parents uh, to Canada. Okay. And then after I got my three degrees from Canada, um, my PhD was from the University of British Columbia. Uh, I went down to the States, uh, taught there for about 14 uh, and a half years. And then, you know, when a chair professorship opened up at Simon Fraser University, um, because I've lived in Vancouver before, uh, so I really liked the place. And at that time I said, you know, well, um, it, it, it would be nice to, you know, go back. And then, you know, so uh, I've been here for quite a while. Okay. And uh, can you remember the first time uh, you realized uh, that there's international versus domestic? Always in Hong Kong, this is easier than uh, mainland China. Yeah. So um, I actually realized that when I was very young, okay. And uh, as you said, you know, um, most probably it stems from the fact that I grew up you know, even though I was not born in Hong Kong, but uh, I was raised in Hong Kong. Um, and um, so from a very early age, I would say even before I entered grade one, I realized the distinction between domestic and foreign, okay? Um, and the reason why I realized that was first uh, because Hong Kong then was a British crown colony. So the top echelons of society, be it government, business, were all occupied by the British. So therefore there was always that foreign domestic kind of distinction. I also went to a Catholic school, uh, a Catholic all girls school that was uh, run by Italian nuns. So all the best schools in Hong Kong. And I think to a certain extent in many of the emerging economies are run by Catholic you know, uh, you know, religious orders. And so from a very early age, my classmates were either the children, I mean, of course, I a lot of Chinese classmates, but I also had classmates who were the children of British and Portuguese expatriates. And we will say why Portuguese? Well, because um, Hong Kong is close enough to Macau, which, which then was a Portuguese colony. Um, there were also children who were the, uh, uh, whose parents were merchants from India and Persia. So I grew up in a very multi, you know, cultural kind of environment. And um, so at a front row seat, in a sense, to multicultural teams, I mean, which we, which at least I later learned about, and uh, also was able to watch the dynamics. I observed uh, very early on about the functional and dysfunctional consequences that could be associated uh, you know, with having multicultural teams. Um, for instance, I saw that conflicts sometimes could arise among uh, children or my schoolmates from different cultural backgrounds, but strong bonds and friendships could also be formed between people from you know, uh, different cultural backgrounds. 
I also uh, saw that the uh, priests and the nuns who were from overseas, um, you know, a lot of them came from Italy, could also form very strong bonds uh, with the people in the local community itself. So I saw the positive aspects of it, but I also saw the dysfunctional aspects, which was that there was a great deal of inequity in society. Um, and um, for instance, all the top echelons being occupied by the British, regardless of competencies. Um, and I also saw that decisions um, were often made in the British Parliament, which was thousands and thousands of miles away, without regard uh, to the desires uh, of people who were living uh, in Hong Kong. So uh, later on, I mean, of course, when I look at it, I say, oh, well, isn't that almost like the dynamics between head office and subsidiaries itself? You know, so uh, yeah. So even though I didn't realize those terms uh, at that time, but I, you know, I became very aware and uh, attuned to you know these kinds of differences and some of the dynamics that were associated with it. Rosalie, how did you choose academia and within academia international? I, mean, I, I can now make a connection between international management pursuits and uh, your life, your your upbringing. Mm -hmm. But how did you decide to pursue academia uh, specifically, especially in Canada? Well. Um... It ties in with uh, my answer to the uh, to 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 one of your first questions, which is you know that I knew that I you know needed you know, a good education in order to you know be an, an inventor, uh, quote unquote, um, and um, so um, after you know so pursuing an MBA at that time uh, was something which was very novel uh, for a woman. So I you know I I did that, and as I was finishing up my MBA program. I found that I really liked what I was doing. So I decided to go on for a PhD, okay. And um, so given my background, I told my supervisor at the time uh, that I wanted to um, do my doctoral uh, dissertation on, on something that was uh, related to international business. And um, my supervisor, um, Professor Vance Mitchell said, you know, that this is something that I shouldn't do. So. One has, again, to put this in context, because in the late 70s, cross-cultural uh, research was not in vogue. In fact, it could be downright detrimental to one's career because, you know, like there were very few publications that one can, you know, think of. I could, you know, still remember the article by Hans Scholhammer uh, and, um, and on looking at an elephant. Um, so my supervisor, is one of the nicest persons um, that um, a PhD student could have. So he told me, he said, um, Rosalie, why don't you choose a topic that you can demonstrate your competencies in? And after that, you have a lifetime to pursue what you're interested in. So I took his advice literally. Um, and because of my interest, you know, I, I, I really didn't look back. But in terms of my publications, uh, for instance, my first major publication was not on international business. Um, it was uh, a 1979 article in the Academic Management Journal that grew out from my dissertation, which related uh, to, which uh, related to organizational environments and um, organizational structure. So, um, uh, and it was only later, you know, that I had an article. Um, in international business. So that was the Columbia Journal World Business article 
uh, on selection and training of expatriates. Perfect. Uh, something that is not on your CV, but people might find interesting about it. Okay. There are lots of things, okay, but uh, I think uh, there is time for me to talk about only two. One is the fact that I uh, was uh, raised and spent the formative years of my life in Hong Kong. And uh, my parents, well, both of them are Chinese. Um, my father was very Western in his education and outlook. Uh, my mother, uh, in contrast, uh, espoused strong Chinese traditions and, and also uh, was a very um, strong Catholic, okay? So I grew up, you know, like seeing that differences uh, can bring about a lot of benefits, okay? Mm -hmm. And that it's possible to reap benefits from such diversity itself. So, so even though I'm Chinese, I grew up bicultural and bilingual from a very early age onwards. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's uh, one of the uh, things. The, the second thing that people most probably don't know is that I'm a strong introvert. Um, and um, I didn't uh, know until um, after the, uh, the two WAVE AIB Women's Fellows sessions uh, that, was, that was championed by Lorraine uh, at the 2020 and the 2021 meetings uh, that um, when, when we uh, had this gathering uh, of Women's Fellows, um, when I found out that actually quite a, a number of my esteemed colleagues uh, in uh, at AIB were also uh, introverts. So I find that to be, you know, quite surprising in a sense. It's almost like a tool of the trade. <laughs> but, um, about uh, alternative career paths, uh, if you didn't uh, become a successful scholar, uh, what would you do? What, what would be the second best alternative career path for you? I've always had an interest uh, as I indicated at the beginning about the nurturing aspects of, or of doing something that would be nurturing. So um, if I did not embark on an academic career, um, I would most probably have devoted my time to helping uh, women uh, and girls uh, in countries that really do not have the kinds of privileges that we have. Um, so I think it's important for me, uh, or what I would most probably do would be to, uh, you know, go uh, to these places and educate uh, young women and girls so that they do have the kinds of opportunities uh, that we have uh, in uh, developed societies itself. Um, but I would say that I feel very privileged uh, in terms of what I'm doing, you know, so, um, you know, so I'm happy with what I'm doing. But if I had to choose a second career, I think that's most probably what I would want to do. Perfect. Uh, about regrets, anything uh, that you've done in the past that you think you shouldn't have done or something that you missed as an opportunity, regrets? I really couldn't think of uh, any, okay? Uh, this is not to suggest that I've uh, accomplished whatever, I, uh, you know, um, all the things that I want to do. Um, but to me, the greatest regret in life would be if I set my sights on something and I didn't want to do it, or at least didn't want to try it. 
uh, because I was afraid of failure. Um, I would say that um, if I set my sights in something, I would want to put my best effort into it. And if I fail to accomplish what I set out to accomplish, you know, then at least I could say, well, I tried. Uh, it may not have worked, but at least I, you know, did put in my best effort. Perfect. Uh, now, what, what, what are you most passionate about? What am I most passionate about? I'm most passionate about doing things well, okay? And um, both of my parents are perfectionists. My mother in particular, she always says that um, if you, you know, put your effort, if you spend a lot of time on something, um, it has to come out well because the product has to stand the test of time. So that was something that I grew up with. I'm heavily influenced by uh, my parents, but particularly by what my mother, uh, all the wisdom that she has imparted on me. You know, so she said, you know, like make sure that you do everything well, okay? Uh, regardless of what the outcome is, but the product has to stand the test of time. So that's something that has always stuck with me. So if I, you know, set my sights on something, I would say, okay, I know that it might require the learning of new skills um, or, or, you know, like, uh, spending a lot of hours uh, in accomplishing that, but I'm willing to do it because it has to stand the test of time. So that's what I'm passionate about. But it's very difficult, isn't it, to stand the test of time? Yeah, I mean, things we do every day, they don't really stand anything. Uh, very few things can stand the test of time. Yeah, well, uh, I guess standing the test of time, you know, maybe has a special connotation to us in research. But what my mother meant um, was that she said, let's say, even if you are going to sew something, okay, um, you have to sew it well, okay? Mm. Because okay. that sewing has to be, I mean, it could be viewed by other people, okay? Or at least there's to last a certain period of time. Okay, until okay. let's say the, the entire piece of cloth is all you know, like tattered you know, and it could no longer be used. So that's what she meant by standing the test of time. And that's what I learned from her in the sense that, you know, so even though it takes a lot more time to sew it neatly, sew it nicely, you know, make sure that every little you know, uh, nook and cranny is covered, uh, but that's what, uh, what it means to stand the test of time. So I guess it's a little bit different, you know, uh, in an academic context when we say, you know, oh, you know, uh, a certain theory stands the test of time. I mean, it's, it's not meant in that kind of context. Perfect. Uh, but I, it's going to trickle down to research as well. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I would like to see how you approach <laughs> empirical papers, you know, one uh, variable at a time, one data point at a time. Okay, mm -hmm. about research. Uh, how do you explain your research to people who don't read your work regularly, say in a pub, in a coffee, um, coffee shop, um, and how do you explain the importance of your research? Okay. Um, okay. So if I were to talk to an audience that uh, is not familiar with the academic jargon, if I were, you know, talk to, you know, people in different social groups, I would tell them that I um, am a teacher uh, of new knowledge. Okay. I mean, obviously I would drop the terms of, you know, evidence-based uh, research, uh, because that has no meaning uh, to people. But I would say that uh, the new knowledge that I'm, you know, uh, sharing with them, or that I've learned, uh, is on how people from different backgrounds and experiences can work together more harmoniously. Um, 
And uh, I know that um, even if we're dealing with very small societies where there's a lot more homogeneity, uh, there could still be differences based on, let's say, gender, uh, based on age. And that could sometimes be the cause of conflict. So I would say, you know, that my research helps people understand, um, you know, why these kinds of conflicts might occur and how to minimize those and uh, lead to more positive kinds of outcomes. And to a certain extent, the research that I've done, particularly on uh, expatriate assignments, uh, international diversity, it really looks at what separates or, or what are the potential sources of conflict uh, among groups. Uh, and uh, so what are some of the ways in which we can mitigate or minimize some of these differences and focus more on the positives as opposed to the negatives that may be associated with such kind of interactions. So that's how I would explain to them. And I think people in most societies uh, would be able to appreciate or understand that. Yes, thank you. Uh, about uh, omitted variables, neglected areas of research, things we have done, covered, uh, but maybe we should do more of uh, for future uh, research. What are those going to be for you? I think variables perhaps may not be the uh, correct term, and it's not that I mean this in a disrespectful manner, um, because I see quite a bit of research wherein um, people add two or three more new variables, but the um, but it's only of marginal uh, increments to uh, the general pool of knowledge that we have. So I'd, I would focus more on the different approaches, uh, you know, like encouraging certain types of approaches uh, to research. Uh, for instance, if we were to look at our top journal, JIBS, uh, I see that the lenses or the perspectives that we have used uh, to date uh, primarily come from management, strategic management, economics, but there are certain other disciplines that are uh, less represented. So I certainly hope that um, these different lenses could be introduced more into uh, our publications. And that stems from the fact that uh, IB really is multidisciplinary in nature. I'd also like to see the use of more non-Western lenses in terms of our research. Um, perhaps rightly so, uh, to date, our research has focused very much on a Western, uh, and by Western, I mean uh, North American and Euro-centric you know, kinds of approaches and lenses. Um, I think a lot of progress has been made using those kinds of lenses, but we can certainly make improvements by using some of the non-Western lenses. Um, to give you an example, for instance, if we're to look at the yin-yang perspective, uh, I think, it, um, and many people tend to associate yin-yang perspective with, um, uh, with paradoxes, okay? But it's really quite different from paradox uh, in that sense. Um, and I think given the, you know, the, the, the contradictions that we see in society today, the divisions, I think the yin-yang perspective or some of the non-Western perspectives could be very useful. Um, I think we can also um, entertain a greater diversity of research methodologies, okay, uh, different paradigmatic approaches 
to understanding international business phenomena. And again, that stems from the fact that IB is so multidisciplinary in nature. Um, I was actually quite struck by how important it would be for us to develop these different kinds of approaches because in the 2020 West uh, Munich uh, Security Conference, it was entitled as Westlessness. I think most probably you have, you, you have you've heard of this conference. So in essence, the Western countries or powers were looking at like, what is the role for the Western Alliance? What is the role of multilateralism of Western values in a world where the geopolitical dimensions are changing so rapidly? So in a sense, you know, the world that we know in the future will be very different from what we have known in the past 20, 30, or even 50 years. Okay, so, so, how, so how can our research actually reflect and capture those new dynamics? And that's what I hope to encourage a lot more research uh, rather than, you know, the, um, you know, so, so I'm not discounting research that adds, you know, one or two new variables, but I think uh, perhaps we have to, you know, like look at research from, new perspectives, you know, so as to generate knowledge, uh, new knowledge that really could help us address many of the issues that are uh, happening around the world today. I want to talk about the evolution of the field, uh, but obviously 1970s and early on, uh, things were a lot more multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary, and then things converged into something more silos and uh, rather with... Uh, boundaries, uh, uh, you, you've seen a pattern, you, you've seen um, evolution. And can you talk to us about uh, what they will gain, what they will lost along this, this uh, evolutionary path? Okay. I'll preface it by saying that I was fortunate to have met and interacted and learned uh, from many of the founding fathers of international business. So for instance, I've uh, uh, met Dick Robinson, uh, Dick Farmer, uh, Hans Florelli, uh, Stefan Roba, Ken Simmons. Okay, uh, in fact, um, Dick Robinson uh, spent. Uh, I mean, his his time at the Foreign Investment Commission in China coincided with mine, and uh, so um, you know, back then in Beijing, you know, when 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 uh, when outsiders, you know. You know, lived in the same compound, had you know lunch, dinner all together. You know, so I was fortunate to spend a lot of time uh, with him and his wife. Um, so I learned a lot from them. And um, so the founding fathers came from different disciplines. So IB is a relatively new field as compared with you know the other functional areas uh, that uh, we look at. So because of the different functional backgrounds of the founding fathers. So the discipline started out being very uh, interdisciplinary, but over time, as you say, it became more siloed. And um, I think there is a downside to that. Um, and I'm quoting Bruce Cogart here. So um, I can't remember at which, uh, you know, which year the conference was, but Bruce Cogart talked about looking at IB knowledge and also knowledge from the other functional disciplines as almost uh, in the context of balance of trade. So he talked about IB being in a deficit position. Okay. We <laughs> primarily borrow uh, from uh, theories and concepts in other disciplines 
in return, there's very little export uh, to other functional disciplines itself. And I think that that's something that we have lost, it seems, in the process of being more siloed, uh, so, that in, so that the publications in our top journals are now currently being read primarily uh, by people in the international business community. I think that should be redressed uh, because by nature, as I said, IB is multidisciplinary. So therefore, um, I hope that um, by proactively, you know, like uh, engaging scholars in other functional disciplines, uh, you know, by, by showing you know, them that we not only borrow, but we can develop theories and concepts that would be relevant to them. So that could be, uh, again, be more even a balance of trade between IB uh, and the other functional areas. And that's something that I hope will happen. There's a tall order though. I mean, uh, yes, you're right. Uh, exports from the field is very, very, very low. Um, do, do, do you write every day? Do you work every day? I work every day. And I know that my husband finds, you know, so he, he, he always says, um, he says, you're like when you're um, an assistant professor pre-tenure, you're working <laughs> late in the evenings, working on weekends. He said, no, that you're, no, that you're a full professor. Okay, you have a chair, uh, you still work. And I said, well, because I enjoy what I do. And, uh, you know, so um, if I didn't, I mean, even if for whatever reason, you know, like I'm, I, I'm not, you know, associated with a university, I think I would still be doing the kinds of things that I, you know, uh, like, which is, which is writing, uh, which is coming up with new knowledge. I find that when I engage in research, particularly on topics that I find very fascinating to me, I always learn something. And I've always told people, I said, you know, like, even if my publication were not accepted for publication, I mean, obviously all of us want uh, in honesty to have our uh, research published. Uh, but I said, even if my research is not publishable, I'm still happy because I learned something about myself. Okay, And, uh, you know, so uh, I think that's what keeps me going. So to, to me, uh, research is, even though it's work, um, but to a certain extent it's play because it, it really helps me know myself better. And uh, I think that's what keeps me going uh, all these years. Interesting. Um, about the idle curiosity question in a state of idle curiosity, what does your mind think of? How do you come up with interesting, uh, creative ideas, new, new topics uh, to work on? I try to find relations among systems or, you know, like um, concepts that hitherto appear to be very separate and distinct from each other. So let me give you an example. Um, this past weekend, um, Virgil Abloh, who is a, the first African-American designer for Louis Vuitton, uh, passed away, okay? And so I was reading his background and I found that uh, he was born in the United States uh, of immigrant parents from Ghana. He got uh, an engineering degree and a master's degree in architecture. So what has that got to, you know, what is an engineering degree and what has architecture got to do with fashion designing? His mother uh, was a seamstress and so she learned, so he learned the arts uh, of the trade by uh, learning from his mother. So I'm trying to draw the connection 
between things which are, you know, like almost completely separate and distinct and say like, how has his background in architecture and civil engineering inform uh, his uh, passion and the outcome uh, of his fashion design. And uh, so in, in terms of a lot of my own research and in terms of my own thinking, it's trying to find the connections, um, you know, that, uh, so it's like connecting the dots. And to me, that's a light bulb moment uh, when, I, when I find these kinds of connections. Beautiful. Uh, about advice, so, uh, who had the most, no, it's actually not a fair question, but uh, can you remember a couple of the top uh, advice uh, that you received when you were going through the program? When I, when I started on my PhD program? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think my, uh, my PhD supervisor um, always uh, told me that I should show that I should demonstrate my competencies. Um, and uh, to a certain extent, it was particularly important for a woman and a woman who was an ethnic minority because, you know, what people still have certain stereotypes about what women could or could not do uh, back in the 70s. So I knew that I had to work extra hard. Um, and, uh, you know, to show that I, uh, you know, I could do as well, if not better, okay. I know that, uh, and I don't mean that in the arrogant sense, but it's almost like, you know, I have to prove myself. And, uh, you know, so, but that also came very naturally because as I said before, uh, my parents have always impressed upon me the need for hard work, particularly my mother. Uh, so hard work, uh, that was one thing. Um, I think one of the things that my uh, supervisor and my parents have always taught me is to be a good listener. Uh, you know, uh, we do, I don't know it all. I guess all of us don't know it all. So we have to be, you know, good listeners to listen to what people are saying. The world is not just about us. It's about other people and our interaction with other people. Uh, the image uh, and the impression that it leaves on other people. Um, and uh, so, I've learned to be a very good listener. Um, and maybe that accounts for the fact that, you know, I'm more quiet uh, in, uh, in social settings because I don't want to be the person, you know, that is dominating conversation. I want to, you know, listen. I want other people to feel comfortable, particularly, uh, you know, uh, younger scholars, uh, doctoral students, because I know how tongue-tied they might be, you know, um, but I just want to show them that, you know, I'm human because just as uh, the founding fathers of international business, as I said, have shown their human side to me, I want to you know, pass that along to others. And um, the advice which my mentor didn't give me, but my parents have always advised me was that, you know, um, you know treat others the same way that you wanna be treated. And that has always you know, um, been with me. Um, so each time when I interact with somebody, I, and before I say something, I would say, you know, like, how would I feel or how would I react if somebody said that to me? And um, so I think in terms of the way that, uh, for instance, we, uh, if somebody asked me to, uh, for advice uh, on, uh, um, on, let's say, on a research idea, I would always, you know, couch it in a, I mean, even if I think um, there needs to be a lot of work. 
that has to be done uh, in terms of developing that paper, developing that idea. I always try to frame it in a positive light um, and uh, help people work toward that. So it's more of a developmental kind of function. And uh, I feel that, uh, or I find that people do remember these kinds of things. I'm oftentimes quite surprised when 10, 20 years later, people would uh, write me and say, oh, um, when I first met you, uh, or you, you know, that you said this to me and you're nice, okay. And I think that makes a difference, okay. Because um, I could imagine myself, um, you know, starting uh, out, you know, like 40 years ago, if people that I met were nasty to me, were arrogant, I would say, oh, you know, like this, this is most probably not a profession that I want to engage in, or this is not a field that I most probably want to engage in. So I think it's, you know, uh, if I've received from other people uh, the, uh, the generosity and the kindness, I think it's my obligation really to pass it on to, you know, future, uh, to the future generations. I mean, you've seen at least for over the past uh, 50 years, many uh, mistakes that uh, junior faculty uh, pretenure and uh, doctoral students uh, uh, make. What are some of the things that you've observed that you say, you know, these are the top three things that you should do or not do? Um, I think, well, one of the things is obviously to develop good listening skills, okay? And by listening skills, I mean also uh, when we submit a paper uh, to a journal, um, well, I would say for the top journals, the probability of its being rejected is very high. So for instance, if we look at GIPS, we see the, the rejection rate uh, there is very high. If we look at the top academic management journals, the rejection rate is always very high. So first of all is to develop good listening skills to the feedback um, that is provided in the letter of rejection, okay? Um, I would say in most instances, uh, the reviewers, and the action editor have good intentions in their heart. I think oftentimes we become so, um, you know, uh, so unhappy about the decision that we say, you know, I'll just, you know, uh, you know, delete this entire email. In the old days, I would, you know, tear up something. Okay, um, but I think that would be the wrong kind of approach. Um, so we have to listen. Um, the second. Um, advice that I would give is to deal with rejection. And again, that ties in with the high rejection rates of many of the top journals itself. I know it's very difficult to accept rejections. Um, and I think all of us, okay, have had our manuscripts rejected. I could still remember the very first rejection letter that I got, okay. I could remember exactly where I was, okay. I mean, so this is the deep impression that it made me. And I cried buckets. Um, and so I fully understand, you know, how it hurts uh, when there's a rejection uh, because we put so much of our heart and soul into writing uh, that paper, you know, like uh, all the work that goes into it. Uh, I've always said, you know, it's like somebody saying that your baby is ugly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that must be something that is very hurtful. But I think we have to get over that. So if I were to... Uh, and I've received many rejections uh, uh, in my life, okay? So I would say I would, you know, put it aside for a couple of days, 
because obviously it's difficult to focus on it uh, in the first couple of days. Uh, put it aside, reread uh, the comments, uh, the, the, the feedback again, and then work harder on it. Okay. A third advice that I would give is, I find that some of the younger people now tend to be more calculating and strategizing okay, to, 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 to advance in the field. And I mean, obviously all of us do need some kind of strategies, okay? We can't just, you know, blindly blunder into something, okay? Um, but um, I think if we were to over-strategize, um, and I've seen that unfortunately, in terms of, you know, like who should we talk to or who should I approach in a conference or, or like, what should I do kind of thing? Uh, if we're to focus too much time on that, I think it really takes the fun out of the profession itself. And uh, after all, in order to you know, stay in the profession for a long period of time, uh, we have to you know, enjoy it and uh, you know, have some fun in the process itself. So I think you know, that's very important. About uh, mid-career people, advice. Well, it actually applies dealing with the rejection. It, it, it applies to them as well. But is there anything specific for after tenure, uh, mid-career people that uh, they should be doing? I think after um, after tenure, then it really depends upon what the person really likes. I mean, I know some people enjoy teaching over research, and that's perfectly fine. I mean, because after all, we do need you know like people that are very much dedicated to teaching. Um, you know, so I would say you know one should you know one should channel their services uh, or their attention more to you know the uh, you know, to the teaching component. I think service to the um, uh, professions is also very important, okay? Um, I know that for instance, in my own case, I could not be active in too, in too many associations because I only have a number of time. So I've decided, you know, that it's both with the Academy of Management and with AIB and uh, service. Um, so service um, does take a whole lot of time. I still remember, um, you know, like, when I was on the executive board of the Academy of Management. And uh, so particularly you know, like the first you know, few months, they were constantly talking about volunteers. I said, who are the volunteers? <laughs> I naively asked, I said, who are these volunteers? They said, you, you're the volunteer because you're not paid for that service. And, I said, and then it just dawned on me, I said, yeah, you know, I'm a volunteer, you know, I'm not paid for my service, but I'm spending a lot of my time, a lot of my energy effort in, into this kind of activity itself. So it's really to, you know, um, to engage in the service because you feel, uh, at least I felt that it was my, um, it was my obligation to give back to a profession that has been very important to me. So I feel both AIB and the Academy Management have very been very important parts of my life. They have helped uh, me uh, develop the, you know, the skills of being uh, a good researcher, um, being a good teacher, you know, so it's it was really my time to give back. And because these organizations have limited resources, you know, that's why they need all these volunteers. Rosalie, I want to uh, follow up on a question uh, that you, um, on a topic that you mentioned about how to deal with rejection or the, the publication process. Uh, yes, you're right, associate editors, editors, editors in chief, are uh, usually very developmental. They, they push for the papers and they champion uh -huh. the papers uh, uh -huh. to, to make the paper better. 
And how you deal with uh, bad reviewers who are not really, uh, who are either too harsh, they are not really uh, focused, not knowledgeable, not too competent. They just want to reject the paper they, because their experience was difficult when they were publishing. Uh, how do you deal with, uh, uh, as an author, as, a, as the contributor, uh, how do you deal with uh, bad reviewers? I would say, unfortunately, there are some reviewers that are bad, quote unquote. Um, and I've encountered some of those in my career, uh, as I'm sure that most probably that you have, uh, you know, uh, that you've encountered. So if it's, uh, I would say, if we, if we look at bad reviewers, okay, quote unquote, as those who only say negative things about your paper, okay, or about my paper, um, and really do not offer any kind of constructive advice as to you know how possibly one can turn this around. I mean, obviously, if if the whole topic was you know was was uh, you know does not merit research, um, and if the methodology was incorrect, okay, um, somehow that has to be conveyed to the author. But I think it has to be conveyed in a nice way. So it shouldn't be say, you know, that what you're doing is rubbish, okay, <laughs> and uh, you don't know anything. Uh, I think as a courtesy, uh, as humans, I don't think we should be saying those kinds of nasty things to, you know, to anybody. I mean, ultimately these kinds of things hurt and we don't know how different people take it, okay. Mm -hmm. um, so, I would say if it's those kind of bad, you know, bad reviewers, I would um, remove them as uh, reviewers. Or if let's say, if I'm just an author, I would say, yeah, you know, maybe the person had a bad day. I guess I'm an optimist in the sense that I always try to find an excuse as to why people do wrong, okay? So I would say, you know, most probably the person had a bad day, you know, I mean, because I don't know who the reviewer is, okay? But, you know, maybe that explains for it. Um, but if it's a review that, you know, is very critical, okay, uh, but there's truth to it, um, I would say that I would take that, I would, take that more seriously. So I wouldn't consider that to be a bad reviewer, okay? Um, so let's say um, if the person was very critical critical about the kinds of, you know, let's say concepts that we put into there, I would say, well, is there any way that I can really redress this? Even if there's no way that I can satisfy this particular reviewer, um, perhaps I could still, you know, like salvage, revise it in such a way that uh, it could be published in another uh, international business journal itself. Um, that's, I guess that's how I would approach it. But, um, but I do understand what you're saying because I know very early on in my career, I had one reviewer that said that I invented multivariate analysis, okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so even though, <laughs> the person, and I have no idea who the person is, okay, um, you know, uh, may not like what I did, okay, but I, I wish I could have invented multivariate analysis, uh, you know, so, uh, so I think one has to, you know, uh, you know, like really try to differentiate and distinguish between, you know, like what is 
what is critical, but still constructive, uh, but you know, what is, you know, just destructive uh, to begin with. Perfect. Uh, for the sake of time, unfortunately, what's the question that I should have asked you, but haven't? Um, no, I think you've been very um, uh, comprehensive in your, uh, in your questions. And, and perhaps I, I, I may want to uh, tie in uh, one last point, which is, and it goes back to this nurturing role uh, that I talked about. So in terms of my enthusiasm for this whole issue of expatriate assignments, international assignments, I, I'm very gratified when I receive letters from my students 20 or 30 years later telling me that they undertook an international assignment. They became expatriates uh, because of the enthusiasm that I showed in the field. And it really goes back to this, uh, you know, saying that, um, uh, you know, that we're in a sacred profession where we have this obligation, but at the same time, this extreme privilege of being able to influence young people as they, you know, start out on their lives and their careers itself. So I'm always very gratified by that particular aspect of it. I said, I feel like a mother, you know, so a lot of children out there in that sense. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, Rosalie, thank you so much for this interesting and candid interview. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Ilgas.